Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to today's episode of Stop the Killing. We are, well, I say the royal we actually, because Catherine has got a life and jetted off on holiday. So my guest today is actually Lucy Wade. Now, we met Lucy at CrimeCom, and it sparked a conversation between the three of us about domestic violence, domestic abuse, and how that crosses over with our topic of mass shootings. And in particular, you know, we've covered cases like the Sandy Hook Elementary school shooting and the Plymouth shooting, whereby the first victims of the perpetrator have been their mother. And that's what we're looking at is how the first victim is somebody within the house and then that violence can spill out with devastating consequences. But Lucy, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our audience and and tell us about all your amazing work that you're doing. Oh, and thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Very grateful. Yeah, so I'm Lucy and I am the creator of a website called You Don't Own Me. And I also, within that website, host guest blogs and a podcast. And the podcast is called Dip In and Out with Lucy. And the reason I kind of picked the name for Dip In and Out is with the subject of domestic abuse, it obviously is a very difficult subject for a lot of people. And if you're looking for support and you're looking for things to listen to or to watch, then it can be quite traumatic. So the idea was that you could just dip in and out, stop when you wanted. If you didn't want to carry on, a lot of the time with domestic abuse, the control has been taken away from the victim and the survivor. So I'm trying to give that back to them to say it's on your terms, how you listen, how you watch, how you engage. And basically just trying to connect with as many professionals who are doing some amazing podcasts. For example, Charlotte Hooper, Cyber Helpline. She did one on cyber stalking to sort of bring that into the limelight where obviously, you know, for many, many years, we've thought of domestic abuse and stalking as an in-person crime, whereas actually cyber stalking is on the rise and a lot of people don't even realise that they are being stalked online. You've just given me a chill right down my spine. It's not even on my radar, cyber stalking. But just even today on Instagram, I had those, you know, no profile, no followers, people starting to follow. And, you know, I just ignore them and don't think too much of it. But I think what I'm hearing is I might need to go to listen to that episode, Lucy. Absolutely. It it was fascinating because as well, a lot of the time, you know, the restrictions that are put on a victim or a survivor, if you have managed to remove yourself from the abusive situation, a lot of the time. You don't feel comfortable using social media. So you're already isolated even more by the fact that you don't want to use all the different social platforms because you are afraid that they will set up a totally separate account, you know, a fake account 
which obviously does happen, then there's obviously the issues with, well, by that point, you just don't feel safe. You just don't feel safe being able to use anything. And then when you're trying to explain it to people, they kind of go, oh, I think you're being a bit dramatic. You're being a bit, you know, extreme there. But the problem is you're not being extreme. It is more often than not, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say, don't they? So a survivor will have that intuition and know, because as much as the perpetrator knows their victim, inside and out because that control and that power has been going on for so long a victim also knows what that person has been doing to control them so it's a kind of sometimes once you as they say come out of the fog if you like and you see what's been happening and you realize it's not normal behavior then you do start to analyze it yourself and go okay so that wasn't normal behavior but that's a typical you know mo of theirs to do x y and z and it can take a long time and for some people they obviously never realize it which In the case of the shootings with the mothers, you know, obviously it's devastating. Can you maybe, as you say, dip in a little bit to your story and how you came to be in this advocacy role in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually a service user myself, which more often than not, you find people who work within the domestic abuse environment have had some sort of element of domestic abuse within their own lives, whether it's a family member, a friend, you know, it has affected you. And more often than not, then you would like to go out and volunteer, which is what I did. So having been a service user, I then volunteered for my local domestic abuse charity. And from that, I then worked for them. And I worked one-to-one with victims and survivors. And it was an incredible role. So rewarding beyond words. But I felt that a lot of the time when the support is there, it's there for a limited amount of time because obviously funding like everything else runs out. And what do you do then if you can't keep going to that course you've been going to for six weeks? I always say domestic abuse, it's not like recovering from a cold. It is something that will go on for a very long time. And it's a lot of unpicking. It's a lot of working through a lot of the things you've had to deal with. And that doesn't go away after six weeks. Victims may return to the perpetrator. They may refer themselves back in for support. And it just seems to be going around and around. So I thought, well, if you had a website where anybody could go, It isn't exclusively for men, for women. It's for anybody, including family, friends, work, colleagues. Very often they don't know how to support people within, you know, their own families who are going through abuse. And I think that's a big element that I wanted to draw attention to is they need the support as well, because even though they haven't been impacted by it directly, hasn't happened to them, they are then trying to support their loved ones and haven't got the tools to do it. And the reason I called it You Don't Own Me is because I felt it was really universal it didn't scream any particular area of, of any person. It was just, that's, that's for everyone. It's not statistics. It's not intimidation. It's just conversation. And that's all it is, is to make that a really easy conversation to have. Because unfortunately, for many, many years, domestic abuse is something that's been spoken about in the shadows. We don't talk about it because we don't understand it. And I don't see why in kind of this day and age now, it isn't a conversation we can all be having. Because if we can help future generations to see well, actually that behavior isn't normal. And you don't know how much learned behavior goes on for a child at home. You know, when people are in these, and I'm using a very broad brush here when people are in situations, but I liken it back to the con stories that I've done in the past and the people that are in the midst of being conned or in the middle of a fraud can often times not actually see what's happening to them 
Yeah. And I wondered if that's something that also is part of the makeup and grooming around abuse and domestic situations. Yeah, absolutely. And you've completely summed it up. So take the example of an older person that has been going through abuse for many, many years. We often don't think of people in their 60s, 70s as being abused because generations before that was the way things were. You know, mum was at home, dad was out of work. And so if, as an example, you think of somebody being in a relationship in a marriage, say, 50 years, over that period of time, that behavior that the perpetrator has displayed, whether it's the, the male or the female, whoever it is, or the child, because, you know, we, we have child to parent abuse as well, then that behavior has manifested itself over a long period of time. I always say this slowly and insidiously. It's very much a marathon, not a sprint that the perpetrator is, is drip, drip, drip. The control, it starts off usually in what we call love bombing. So in the beginning, the perpetrator will shower that person with love and attention, make them feel like they're the most important person on the planet. And then slowly, you know, the jibes start to come in. I don't like your hair like that. I don't like that skirt on you. I don't like those trousers, like whatever it is. And it, it becomes something that then erodes your self-esteem, your self-confidence. I think a lot of people have the misconception that victims are a particular type of person and it's so not true. It can happen to absolutely anybody, you know, and that then becomes your norm. So even though you could be looking at this and thinking, how on earth did they stay in that relationship for that length of time? How did they put up with it for as long as they did? Well, they did because for them, that was normal. That was their norm. And then that makes it really difficult when you're talking to victims, when they've come for support, it's very, very difficult. You have to be very gentle about it because for them, you've got to appreciate it's a very long time that that's been going on for, and that is their normal. And in some cases, and people look at this really strange, but some people choose to stay. You know, people think, well, why would you stay in that situation? I would never do it. And one thing I will always say is, you don't know what you would put up with unless you're in that situation. And I think very much that's what I'm trying to get past is the whole judgment element, because if you are judging somebody, say, by your own standards, well, that's not much of a comparison, is it? Because you can't compare your situation with no. somebody who is experiencing domestic abuse. So, yeah, it does very much become normalised and it's a very difficult thing to break down. I mean, there's so many parallels with what you were saying to those victims of fraud that I've dealt with, you know, in Conning the Con and Clueless. And of that insidious is the perfect word for it that slow insidious grooming and narrowing people's reality to make you fit in with their narrative and i totally understand what you mean about that whole we need to change the narrative of the victim shaming the victim blaming yeah. conversations that happen because when my sister was conned i as an outsider couldn't understand how my intelligent, beautiful, smart sister, how she could then still have got so far down the rabbit hole with this person. And that's why we both dived into the psychology of it to try and understand and strip back. Actually, hang on, what is going on here? This isn't a normal situation. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. People can't understand or actually even grasp how deep the control and the power goes that these people frame up around their victims. It, and saying that now, you just made me think of something we used to use in the charity work for when we did a lot of the support work. We'd use the example of Stockholm Syndrome. So obviously this is the trauma bonding. So when you are trying to explain to people, why would you be so bonded 
this person because they've made you believe that you cannot survive without them. And then when we use this example of Stockholm syndrome, where, you know, the captors were falling in love with the captor. And, you know, I think one in particular, they even got engaged. You know, it was, it's, wow. it's so deep psychology beyond words that I think it's really hard sometimes to explain to people is they then, they built this trust between them and it's like they're in a bubble. Yeah. And anybody that is the victim and the perpetrator, no one is going to come between you and your victim or you and the perpetrator. No one. It's the two of you against the world. That's why isolation is a big factor yes. in stick abuse and, you know, remove you from your family and friends, remove you from work. You know, you don't need to work. You can stay at home, all those elements. And I think the Stockholm syndrome sort of example is a really good way of trying to explain to people, well, it does happen. You do become so reliant because it's the fight or flight scenario. What are you going to do? Are you going to fight this person? No, because you can't win. So what are you going to do? You're going to try and coexist with them, but under their power and control. It's 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 a very complex um, subject. So but- complicated. It is so complicated. <laughs> and I think, you know, if you're listening to us out there now and you're thinking, listen, I don't get it. I don't get it. Stop. Take a moment and just educate yourself around that whole element of grooming because, you know, a lot of the time, these perpetrators, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. There's a psychology behind it. I think the term I've heard before is a psychological mask. And they yeah. can mirror yeah, back to that. you what you want to see. And, you know, what the outside perceives looking into a domestic abusive relationship, it might yeah. not have the red flags that are obvious because these perpetrators are reflecting back that psychological mask, both to the victim and to the outside world yeah it's very hard to understand when we live in a world where we trust and we default to trust that we could understand that there could be that level of just evil i mean i would say evil definitely and i think what we don't sort of tend to think about but we have done maybe more so in recent years is the perpetrator can be somebody that is in a very much position of power and in an authority so how do you then navigate that if you're the victim and that person is in a position of authority wherever it is you know obviously we've had elements in the news over the years about police officers etc that it doesn't matter who you are the perpetrator more often than not the more charming they are the more disarming it is and and somebody said that to me years ago and they used it actually as a compliment about somebody and I thought that's that's horrendous saying that being charming is disarming why would you want to disarm somebody Hmm. When you think about that word, disarm, making somebody vulnerable in a vulnerable state. Absolutely. uh, It doesn't sit well at all. No, no. And those are the kind of things that maybe years ago I wish I'd have spotted as a red flag. Can you expand on domestic violence, domestic abuse? What's the right language to be using in this situation? So for a long time, you know, it was always domestic violence. And then over time... We started to sort of change that language and say, well, actually, domestic abuse is a better kind of umbrella for all the different types of abuse that there are. So obviously there's financial, there's sexual, there's psychological, emotional, and obviously physical. But the physical element is just one aspect. And somebody had actually written a guest blog recently, a divorce coach talking about, is it abuse if my partner doesn't hit me? You know, I work with people myself that say, well, they've never actually laid a finger on me, so it can't be abuse. Well, actually, it can. So I think for me personally, I would always say domestic abuse because then that incorporates all elements. I think 
we it, obviously we have Vogue uh, violence against women and girls. So violence, it is very much an important conversation to have, and it is an important word to use because obviously we have honor-based violence, and you wouldn't say honor-based abuse, would you? Obviously, you say honor-based violence. So I think there's a place for both. But yeah, I think a lot of the time with the work that I'm trying to do, it's more domestic abuse in the sense that it's trying to cover all aspects, including the physical as well. Going back to that definition of abuse not always being physical. Yeah. How do you tell when you've tipped over from something that might be perhaps just an unhealthy relationship to actual abuse? I think that is probably where education needs to change. I'm quite passionate about the idea of education in in primary schools in terms of boundaries, you know, to start as as early as possible really in discussing your personal boundaries, not just saying you have to make up with everybody, you have to forgive everybody, you have to be friends with everybody. We're then encouraging, almost helping the perpetrators in a way, because then we always have to be the one that forgives. We always have to be the one that lets go. And I think it's very difficult for those who have been through abuse over the years to actually know when that tipping point is. Like we said before about the insidious, it's drip, 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 slow, slow, slow. It doesn't always end in violence, but it also can. And you know, somebody can speak to you in a way verbally that can terrify you. You know, they don't have to lay a finger on you. They can scream and shout in your face, call you every name under the sun, but I didn't touch them, you know, it, and that that in itself is is very, very scary. Sometimes it's very obvious that the perpetrators will say, well, if you leave, I'll kill myself. If you do this, I'll kill the children. You know, I will take the children and you will never see them again. I'll make your life a living hell. And it does get that far, but usually it's not very obvious. And then, and another aspect that that a lot of people don't kind of appreciate or understand is the post-separation abuse. Well, you've left now, so therefore you're on the road to recovery, you know, you're fine. Actually, that's when the abuse escalates because you've actually dared to remove yourself from the power and control of that perpetrator. So more often than not, it will not get better. It will get worse and it will get worse for probably quite some time, especially if children are involved because they do not want to lose that power and control. How dare you think you can live without them? So it is really difficult to know when that tipping point is, but I would say post-separation abuse is something that's being talked about more now, which for me personally is very important. I think it needs to be discussed more because I don't think there's that understanding yet that post-separation abuse is something that is really, really dangerous. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. 
It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. You have worked at charities in the past. When people typically come to those charities, is there a aha moment for them that they will get to a point and go, right, this is it? What is it um, that tips them to pick up that phone line? Yeah, it can depend. And again, I can give you my personal example myself in terms of I wouldn't have thought of myself as a victim, a survivor. I wouldn't have given myself those labels. I saw myself as being somebody that went to university. You know, I'd held down job children, thought of myself as quite intelligent and actually didn't see what was happening. And I think a lot of the time it can be that it is the last straw and you just pick up that phone and you're not even sure if you want the support. And that sounds really, you know, bizarre. But if you think of it as you, you don't trust anybody, you don't trust anyone. There is absolutely nobody you trust. You're not sure, you know, of your own mind because you've been so controlled. You're not quite sure whether you're right, wrong. Am I imagining this or is it all in my head? And I think this is where the support services are so vital because they're so patient and they will just hand it over to you and say, what do you want to do? How do you feel? You will never, ever be forced into a situation to do something by any support. They will just be there to support, to help, to talk. And a lot of the time, there's so much unpacking and unpicking of things to do that it is the courses that you attend that are the things that make you go, okay, I didn't really want to come here because I don't want to be labeled as this. And then when you start talking with people who have, and I always say this, Domestic abuse or domestic violence, no two situations are the same. There may be similarities. There may be things and elements where you go, oh, yeah, okay, well, that, 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 I see that. But you will never say, I know, because you don't know. Everybody's situation is unique. Every perpetrator, even though what they are doing is very similar and it's more often than not, unfortunately, a bit textbook, they are individuals and they know what they're doing in their own unique ways of manipulating and coercively controlling. For me, Personally, I did have an aha moment. It was Oprah Winfrey and she was talking about, can you ever forgive after trauma? And I just walk along with headphones in, you know, that's my kind of go-to. But they were saying forgiveness is when you give up the hope that the past could have been any different than it was. You know, the woulda, coulda, shoulda. It's never going to happen. So the second you can accept that and say that it was never going to be any different, But what I can do now is move forward one day at a time in my own space, my own pace. And that for me personally was a bit of a eureka moment was like, oh my God, yeah, okay. So, you know, there's no way you can think, well, if I'd have done this, they may have behaved in a different way. They are always going to behave the way they want to behave because the world is about them. There's no empathy. There's no compassion. It is all about 
their wants and needs. And a big part is feeling validated, I think, a lot of the time. That's the word that keeps coming back to me. You may have friends and family around you, and that's fantastic. But A, they find it very difficult to know how to support, as I was saying before. But also, when you put your head on the pillow at night, it's just you. And it's all in your head. And you are alone, you know, and it's it's difficult then to find people who do understand. And that's why I think it's important to make it clear that you're not on your own. Definitely not. Is there any fear about when people pick up the phone to report it that they can't put the toothpaste back in the tube in terms of it becomes a train that they can't get off? Perhaps the police get involved. How much yeah. control do people have when they pick up the phone that and take action? Um, I mean, obviously, it'll be a case-by-case scenario, but I would say that one of the biggest things that a lot of victims worry about is the confidentiality, the anonymity. You know, a, a perpetrator can get in your head and convince you that that charity's never heard of you. Oh, no, 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 they, you've never spoken to them. You've never, they've never heard of you. And you can end up thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, and then panic about it. You're a logical person. You're a rational person. But the problem is you're back to the trauma bonding. You're back to the Stockholm Syndrome of this person repeatedly having that control. And a lot of the time, people don't necessarily want to report it to police because they feel that, well, where's it going to go? There's a lot of lack of trust and a lack of understanding. And they think, well, why am I going to put myself through this if it's not going to go anywhere? And am I actually just putting myself at more risk? And yes, it is all obviously confidential. It is all anonymous when you do contact a charity, for example, and they will support you in that way. And they certainly would never give out any of your details. But that the problem is for a lot of victims is they feel so scared that they're not sure who to trust. And that's what you will always keep coming back to. Because one thing I tried to do in one of the, the blogs I'd written was talking about trust, saying, you know, you feel like your trust has been broken, but actually it hasn't. Because what you placed your trust in was something that wasn't real. That person was playing a part the whole time. They weren't real. They weren't genuine. So actually, your trust is completely intact. And if you can change your mindset and think in it, that's that's my probably bit of philosophy coming out there from uni. But anyway, it was just something (laughs) that helped me at the time. And I thought, well, if it helped me, it might help other people to think, you know, you can trust again. And yes, you have every right to say it's going to take time. And I don't have to trust straight away. It's giving back that control to somebody that has had absolutely no control for a very long time. But definitely support services are there to do their utmost to help you. And obviously, if they think that children are at risk or this obviously safeguarding concern, then obviously they'd have to take it further. And again, it's a worry when you have children, you think, my children are going to be taken away from me. Is this going to happen? Nobody would ever want that to be the scenario, obviously. But unfortunately, those sort of things do happen. and. That's why a lot of the reporting goes undone because people don't want to report because of fear, you know, and that's where that kind of element needs to change about, well, actually reporting is the only way that you will have any evidence of what has been happening. It's very difficult. We touched on earlier the profile of a victim of domestic abuse. It's not what you might expect or maybe there's perhaps not one particular profile. Can you speak a little bit to what that profile is, if any? And also, can we talk about that slippery slope, that narrowing of how you end up in that situation in the first place? Are there red flags along that pathway before you get really deep in that we can be aware of? Yeah. So I suppose in terms of what is a victim, it really can be 
absolutely anybody, your mom, your dad, your grandma, your granddad, your nephews, your nieces. It really can be anybody. A victim, maybe somebody, again, I'm speaking from personal experience, somebody that maybe has low self-esteem. So they allow somebody then to take over. Maybe for some people, it might be there's been trauma in the childhood. So again, they may find it that they attach themselves to somebody that they think knows better than they do. A lot of the time, you know, the perpetrators will make you believe that they are the only one that can help you in life. But in saying that, the love bombing aspect is just so slow that the red flags could be there from day one. For example, you're at university, you want to go out for a night with your friends, but your boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever says to you, no, 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 they're going to come out with me. We're going to go for dinner. So as the victim, you think, oh, that's so lovely. That's gorgeous. You know, that's really nice. That's them being so protective and loving of me. Actually, no, that's possession. You are a possession of theirs and they don't want you having fun or going off with anybody else. They want you to themselves. And that can be the, the first few weeks of the relationship. That's in terms of also like an intimate relationship, but it can be something as, as early on as that is how you interpret what they're doing because you may want to believe that what they're doing is being protective, whereas actually what they're doing is ensuring that, that they are in control and, and possessing literally your every move. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's very difficult in terms of children. Sort of, I'm, I'm hopefully doing a podcast the next few weeks with a CYP, Children and Young Persons Manager, who is going to talk about that element because for children, you know, it's very different in the sense that if it's a parent that's the one that's being abusive, that child will love the parent no matter what. And that's an element people can't understand is, well, why would you love a parent? Because it's your parent at the end of the day. You know, you love them. It is in you. It is in you to to be loving. And children are very innocent and very loving and very kind. And they don't want to believe that that person could ever do anything to harm them. And I think this is where I go back to the education. So, for example, if the parent says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to push you. I didn't mean to call your names. I didn't mean to do this. Well, we're, we're conditioned to accept that. Whereas actually, I'd like to challenge that and say, no, that's not acceptable. An apology isn't going to cut it, actually. You know, that's not going to work. Saying sorry, brush it under the carpet, because all you're doing then is actually enabling that abuse to continue, because then it will just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And every time they say sorry, every time you forgive, you know, you walk around on eggshells and you're normalizing the behavior. The... Interesting thing, when you look back at the very beginning of these insidious relationships, often on the outside, there's people around you at that stage before you get really isolated. You know, what can the people that are looking from the outside in perhaps be aware of to look for and to go, hey, yeah, something's not sitting right with me. I'm getting a gut feeling. Yeah. I think... What is very important, I think, for any friends and family to know is to go in there all kind of, you know, guns blazing, saying this person is not right for you. Don't do it. You're going to ruin your life. All you're going to do then is that victim is going to then dig their heels in and say, no, 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 I've not got this wrong because it's us, like I said before, the bubble. It's us against the world and you don't understand him or her, you know, and it's, it is very difficult. I, I actually um, feel so sorry for family and friends because more often than not what they will do is say I know and it's the worst thing you can do say I know you know if the person's come out of the situation for example because you don't know and it's learning the language I think there actually needs within support services to be that element for family and friends to get support as well 
And that's what I want to try and do with the website is obviously get that message out that family and friends can look for support. You know, you could, you can ring up a charity, you can ring up and say, look, I really don't know. I've got this suspicion. I don't know how to talk to my friend about it or my family member. I mean, there's something called Claire's Law, which is you can actually find out if somebody has prior convictions. So you can access that information if you obviously contact the right people, the police can basically get that information. And if you don't want to do it, I think a friend or family member can as well if they've got concerns over the person you date. So it's called Claire's Law. And that's a UK-based law? Yes. Right, okay. Yeah. Fascinating. I wonder if there's laws like that in other countries. I've put a link on it to my resources page. So if anybody wants to read up about what Claire's Law is and how it all started. So there is access to finding out, you know, things. But again, it's very difficult because like you say, how do friends and family know if that person is just maybe coming across as a bit arrogant or up themselves? (laughs) You don't know, do you? It's really difficult. But I think caution is probably the word that I would use when you're talking to anybody, friends or family that you think may be uh, experiencing abuse. And actually, the best thing you can do is listen, because because mm. a lot of the time you may find out more if you listen rather than kind of pass judgment. I think we're on the right track in terms of, you know, the Domestic Abuse Act 2021 that was amended. There was a lot of new things put in there in terms of stalking and harassment, coercive control. It's an act that's been around for a while, but I think a big change, if I'm right in saying, is that children are no longer considered witnesses in terms of domestic abuse. They're actually victims. You know, children are very perceptive and very honest (laughs) and will tell you what they think, what they know. So actually to take a child's point of view is something that's really important. You know, so that there are changes and there's a lot more changes coming in the future. And I think there would be more people who would report domestic abuse kind of incidents if they felt that they were believed. And this is something I talked to Mark Brooks about recently. We're talking about the believability element. And especially from a man's perspective is, well, who's going to believe me? You know, I'm a man. I'm actually the victim. How do I get that kind of message across? So believability is a huge problem as well, feeling like you're not being believed. And that's where the systems need to change in terms of training within services so that they understand how to actually talk to victims when they are called out to an incident. You know, if they're called out to a domestic incident, don't make promises you can't keep. That's a big one. Actually have an honest conversation and listen to the person and make sure that you are taking everything down. And I think there's a lot more in terms of training that will happen in the future to ensure that if somebody does report a crime, they will feel safer to do so. Have we got time just to talk a bit about what the profile of perhaps the perpetrator? Is it a one-size-fits-all? Or are there key things that we can see from the outside and that would be like, wow, that's a real red flag? Depending on what element of abuse, you know, not normally it's more than one element. It's not normally just, say, financial abuse that's linked in with emotional abuse. So if you picked apart each, is there something that runs as a thread through all of them? Yeah, it's control. Absolutely. It's power and control. And if you were looking at, for example, the psychological abuse, you think that this person has told you that they're doing something on such and such a day and something as simple as, no, no, don't you remember I told you? It's those kind of things where they're rewriting history to suit themselves and you're tied up in knots. And somebody said this to me once, uh, perpetrators, they're very cunning. They know exactly what they're doing. More often than not, they actually enjoy it because they enjoy running rings around you. 
And everything that they do is about uh, self-aggrandizement. It's all about what they want, when they want it. There's a lot of pressure put on the victim to be perfect. A lot of the time, things can be safe. Red flags, for example, either male, female perpetrator comes home, the house isn't immaculate, toys are on the floor, kids are playing with the toys. I want all that crap put away. I've had a long day. I want to sit down, you know, and usually a lot of the time it's very subtle little digs or things that you may just think, I'm not going to rise to that. I've had a long day. You know, I'm tired of, I've given the kids a bath. I just want to go to bed. I don't want to think about it. It will, again, go back to the insidious aspect is it will very much drip, drip, drip. It will be lots and lots of little things that are said over a long period of time. And Lots of things that, you know, are done. Financial abuse. I did a podcast recently with a lady called Rosie Lyon. We talked about financial abuse. You know, some people are tied into living with the perpetrator because they've got a mortgage together. Well, now the banks are trying to look at that and you can ring up and get support and say, look, I'm, I'm really struggling. I'm having to live with the perpetrator. We're tied in. And years ago, that wouldn't have happened. It had just been, well, you'd either have to leave or you're just going to have to, you know, ride it out till everything's sorted which would be absolute hell for somebody living in that situation. So it will always undoubtedly come back to power and control. And somebody asked me the other day, you know, are people kind of born that way? Is it that they develop that through things that they've seen? And I think it is very much an individual, I suppose. It depends on where you've grown up. You know, if you've grown up in a very loving family where there's respect on both sides and you're very open as a family and you have those conversations, the likelihood is domestic abuse is not going to take place in, in that environment. But if there's a lot of manipulation, there's a lot of shouting, screaming, verbal abuse, then that becomes their norm. So, you know, they say nature versus nurture. I did speak to a psychologist a couple of years ago and she's a friend and she was saying, as long as you have one stable parent, you're okay. And I thought, all right, the baseline is just have one stable parent. But it is, it is difficult. And I think it's very hard to pinpoint why somebody would want to behave that way. That's another thing that it does come down to is they choose to behave like that. It is a choice. They are choosing to abuse you. They are choosing to control you. It comes down to, as I said earlier, is it is all about them. And another point, I think a lot of the charities do this in a a brilliant way, is they can help you with a safety plan. So if you are maybe thinking of leaving, but you're not, Sure, you can. It could be that you've got nowhere else to go. You can actually go and talk to different sports services. You can actually look at safety plans. Sometimes it's a case of throw stuff in a car and you've got to go. There's no time for a safety plan. You know, just it's very much again case by case scenario. But I think if you can have some kind of plan, it can also make you feel safer in the sense that you've got something there that's yours. You don't have to leave it at your house. If you've got somebody you trust, a friend or a family member, you can say, I want to leave this with you and I'm going to work on it. Or again, this is back to the cyber stalking. When you look at your phone, think of having your location off, don't have your location on all the time, you know, look for things like the kind of spyware apps, those sort of things. If you look through your phone to see if you are being tracked. So if you were going to go in person, maybe to a support service rather than use the phone, it's those kind of things. But yeah, you can, you can definitely look at a safety plan and see what's best for you because it definitely is unique to each person. And if you are going to stay in that situation, you can also contact support services to ask, how can I stay safe? I'm not going to leave. You're not going to convince me. And that's fair enough. It's that you don't know why that person wants to stay. And we should never judge. But 
if they do want to stay, how can they stay in the safest way possible? People just don't know the supports out there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, that brings it round to that question of how do you assess risk when you're getting these calls <laughs> in? And then what can you do to mitigate it tipping over into yeah. that next level of where we get to the domestic homicide situations? I'm actually recording a podcast in a couple of weeks with a chap called Tony Blockley, and he is head of criminology, policing and investigation at Leeds Trinity University. And what we are going to be focusing on is conversation around domestic homicide. It's not an area that I personally have that much information about, which is brilliant because that's exactly why I'm doing the podcast is I'm educating myself at the same time as everybody else has been educated. I might know certain things, but I don't know everything. And one of the things he wants to discuss is the idea that you know, if you are trying to assess risk, so police, children's services, if they're trying to assess the risk of somebody, it becomes very difficult when that victim doesn't see themselves as at risk because unfortunately for them, this is normal. You know, this is their life. So if it is that point where it has escalated and there's a lot of physical violence, it doesn't necessarily mean that victim will say, enough's enough, I'm done. It could be, well, actually, this is normal to me. So it's very, very difficult for professionals to then be able to assess that risk you know you can't physically remove somebody from their own home and say you're at risk here you have to leave if two people choose to stay together it's very very difficult and a lot of the time in the past maybe the perpetrator wants to be there when the victim is talking to say the police for example well actually you know you can have that conversation without them there and you want to have that conversation without the perpetrator there because you want to be able to be honest but do think that's going to be a really interesting one because he's worked on all sorts of cases and domestic homicide is something obviously that he's specialised in. Lucy, honestly, it's been such a joy to talk to you. I just couldn't speak all day. I think there's so much crossover between cult leader, the con artist, the domestic abuser and how they weaponise power and control. It absolutely needs to be unmasked. I'm looking forward to being with you in Glasgow because you're going to be with us at CrimeCon with your podcast, aren't you, on Creators Row. Yeah, I'm very excited. So yeah, I'll be there in September and get myself prepared beforehand, but I've got you there to guide me, so I'll be fine. (laughs) Oh, I like to think of that as the blind leading the blind there then. Um, If people want to find you and all your amazing resources, point them in the right direction. So you can either go to the website, which is ydom.co.uk, nice and straightforward. On there are all the podcasts, the guest blogs, but also there's the YouTube channel. Again, you don't own me and that's got all the uh, podcasts on and over on um, Spotify now as well. Be able to find the dip in and out with Lucy Mollett. It's brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you in Glasgow. Yes, see you in Glasgow. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. 
But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast, Ain't It Scary, with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew. But after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.